Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. Father, we just give you praise for you, the God who controls history. Uh, You're the sovereign God above all gods, the Lord above all lords, and the King of kings. And we worship and give praise to you, for you alone are worthy. And that means that you are our Lord also, even when we're in the midst of adversity. Trying and troubling circumstances, difficulties, persecutions and sufferings, financial hardships, physical pains, You are the God who's in control of all that. And uh, we don't know why, but we worry so often. Even though you clothe the the grass of the field and feed the birds of the air, um, you you care so much more for us. We give you praise. Father, again, we do lift up to um, the people of Japan, the people uh, around there, the church especially, that you'd help them to be strong, to be a place of comfort and encouragement and support. We pray, Father, for those who are struggling to survive, that you would bless them, give them hope, bring those people who are rescuers to, to find them miraculously as you sovereignly um, orchestrate it all. We pray, Father, that this nuclear problem would just go away and would be resolved and that there wouldn't be this great calamity. In the meantime, give us strength. Give us hope and courage to be a support, to be able to to listen to your voice as you call on us to be a a source of making a difference. We thank you now as we open up the book of Daniel in this very difficult yet incredibly intriguing passage. Make known to us your word and the truth that is in your word. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Daniel 9. Now, in many ways, by the way, this is, this is probably more depth than I'm going to go into in the seminar, by the way. Um, we can do that in the classroom setting. Daniel 9, is this testing? This works, right? Okay, very good. Because um, I don't want to do this class again. Um, Daniel 9 is really what it all boils down to. When I say it all boils down to, most of the popular eschatology, right, eschatology is a big word, it just means the end times, or the study of the last things. Most of the popular stuff that you and I were raised with really gets its thrust from Daniel 9. All right? so it's, in all reality, the, this whole system of end time stuff that you see in the popular marketplace, it actually comes to the interpretation of one or maybe two verses in Daniel. All right? And, and that's, that's it. And in other words, if these two verses crumble then the whole system starts to crumble. It won't fall, because the whole system won't fall by one or two verses, but it really does. So um, uh, uh, these verses are just of, of utmost significance. Now, 
The problem I think here, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to try to put this in a context of, of the book of Daniel, uh, in light of what we've been doing, and I'm going to kind of go through the chapter 9 with, in all reality, one particular perspective uh, in, in mind. That one particular perspective, I would assure you, is the dominant perspective among scholars and theologians today, and certainly it's the dominant perspective of scholars and theologians throughout the history of the church. So I'm, I'm giving you standard Orthodox biblical interpretation adhered to by most scholars in the world today. Now, it might not be what the popular marketplace has told you. Um, and time permitting, and I, and I certainly believe there will be time permitting, at the end, I'll say, well, all right, here we go. This other viewpoint is saying this. And we'll kind of look at that other viewpoint then and weigh them both out. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, in all honesty, I'm, I'm biased here. I have an opinion. And I really think the best way to do it is to kind of go through and say, hey, this is what I think the text is saying, and then let's compare it now to this alternative viewpoint that's the popular viewpoint that I held to for years and years and years. Uh, and most of you have either held to or still hold to, or you're uncertain uh, about it as well. Um, so I find, and the reason why I'm, I'm going to approach it that way is this, is if I try to lay both viewpoints out there at the same time, the end takeaway is confusion. All right, we don't have clarity on either viewpoint. You're like, well, what, A, B, what, and then we walk away confused. So I, I just have found uh, 21 years of teaching experience is going to help me a little bit here, that this is a better way of doing it. I don't intend to say, I'm going to brainwash you to hold my view. That's not the point. I just think this is a better way to teach it for sake of clarity um, uh, um, as well. So, and if uh, you guys all disagree with me at the end of the night, that's fine. You can be wrong if you want. So, uh, no problem at all. Um, you know, uh, he- heaven is full of a lot of mistaken people. So, <laughs> including all of us uh, as well. All right, Daniel 9. Now, here's the thing I want us to understand. That's this. Daniel, not, we, we had this big story in Daniel 7. All right, can, can, we, can, we, can we summarize the basic pieces of the story of Daniel 7, that apocalyptic vision? What's, what's some of the basic major takeaways? From, remember the four beasts, the Ancient of Days, the Little Horn? What, what's happening in Daniel 7? Not 8, but 7. What's the moral of the story? God's sovereignty. He's in control of... Everything but the nations. He's in control of the kings of the world, right? Which, by the way, is nothing different than Daniel 1 through 6, is it? It's just an apocalyptic way of describing that the kingdoms of the world, remember Daniel 7 and Daniel 2, are strongly paralleling one another, right? Um, there's the nations of the world, and God's the God of all, of all these nations, and the, the King of kings and Lord of lords. All right, what else? What else is happening? There you go, very good. The saints are suffering. At the hands of the beasts, which are the nations of the world. The nations of the world oppose God and his people, but God is sovereign. Remember in Daniel 7, 9 through uh, 14 or whatever, right? It's God sits on the judgment seat. The court sat, and God rules in favor of the saints of the highest one. Meaning, not in favor of the beasts. And specifically, there's that little horn now, right? What do we know about the little horn now? He's boastful. Very good. He speaks blasphemous words against God and against his people. Right? All right what else do we know about the little horn? The abomination that makes desolation. Okay, that's Daniel 
uh, uh, nine, by the way. Uh, so he tramples God's people. All right. So of all the beasts, the little horn, which comes from one of the beasts, is the most terrifying. Right? And it doesn't matter who it is. We can identify it as Antiochus. We can identify it as the final Antichrist. It doesn't matter who it is. The point is, the nations of the world oppose the people of God. God's people are trampled on and suffer greatly at the hands of the nations of the world. But God will bring about a triumph of his kingdom. Remember in Daniel 2, the stone crushes the kingdoms of the world. In Daniel 7, God votes in favor of the, highest, of, of the saints of the highest one. They win. Even though they suffer, they win and God establishes his kingdoms, and the world is, is, is decimated. All right, Daniel 8, same thing. Same theme. The difference in Daniel 8 was a greater emphasis on this little horn. This little horn is really bad stuff, and he's really going to trample the people of God. And it's really going to be bad. And the people of God go, how long? Right, which... We didn't get into the verses, and I hope you looked them all up. The Samuel, the, the Psalms, and, and, and Revelation. How long, O Lord? Zechariah. How long, O Lord? Right? Until you redeem your people. All right? And in Revelation, the saints were told to wait a little while longer. A little while longer, a little while longer, a little while longer. The whole point becomes the time, the duration of all this is uh, it won't be forever. The stone will crush the image, will destroy the kingdoms of this world. God will be, and here's the key, faithful to his covenant. God made a promise to his people, all right, and he's going to be faithful. All right, so guess what? Daniel 9 is telling the same thing. It doesn't look like it, but the same themes... The people of God are opposed by the beasts and the little horn and the nations of the world, and God will victoriously triumph over the nations of the world, establishing his kingdom, uh, vindicating the people of God, you know, proving that they're in the right. They're going to they're gonna have to suffer for a little while. All that's in Daniel 9. The distinction in Daniel 9 now, all right, so Daniel 7, that's the theme. Daniel 8, focus on the little horn. Daniel 9 is going to focus on how God is going to win the victory. So the same story is in play in Daniel 9. How's God going to do this? And the answer, which we all know, is the Messiah. The Messiah. God will send the Messiah, and he will win. Okay? So this is the, this, does that make sense then? The same story is in mind. Daniel 8 focuses on the little horn and evil triumphing. Daniel 9 focuses upon God's victory through the Messiah. But the same story uh, is kind of in play there as well. All right, now, before we go to Daniel 9, we really have to go back, because we're not going to understand Daniel 9 without understanding Leviticus 25 and 26. All right, now, I'm actually going to skip enough verses that I'm not going to bring it up on the, on the computer screen here, which my son has ESPN.com showing on. It's a good boy. That's a good kid right there. Uh, it's a well-trained young man. Very good. Got to check our brackets. Yes, yeah, right. My bracket started off pretty bad this morning, by the way. So, um, uh, all right. Now, 
We could also go to Deuteronomy 27 through 30, by the way. So if you have, if you want to write them down, you can write them down as well. Um, uh, Leviticus chapters 25 and 26 is what we're going to, we're going to, we're going to gloss through. The same thought is in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. And if you've been in some of our classes in the past, we've really uh, uh, stressed those four chapters of Deuteronomy. The same thing is happening in Leviticus, but Leviticus is more to the point. I think Daniel 9 is resonating with Leviticus 25 and 26. Does that make sense? Daniel 9 is, is, is dwelling in these two chapters of Leviticus. All right. Very briefly here, Leviticus 20, 25 is about the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. Verse 3 of Daniel 25. I'm sorry, Leviticus 25. Since there are 25 chapters in Daniel, even in the Catholic Bible, we've got a problem. That must be Leviticus. Here we go. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest. See how the Sabbath is applied to the land now. You have to give the land a rest, a year of rest as well. All right, verse uh, uh, 8. You are to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years, 49. You shall, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. Verse 5, verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year. That's the year of Jubilee. Okay? The 50th year and proclaim a release to the land to all of its inhabitants. Verse 11. You shall have the 50th year as a Jubilee. Okay? So every seventh year, you have a Sabbath for the land. And after seven of those, i.e. 49 years, you have another year, the year of Jubilee. Two years at the end? Theoretically, it's two years at the end, then. That's correct. Very good. All right, not which, questionable whether it ever actually happened as well. All right, we're going to move forward now to chapter 26. Chapter 26, my Bible has this title above verse 1, Blessings of Obedience, and above verse 14, Penalties of Disobedience. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 27 through 30 are all about, right? And what is the obedience or disobedience to? The covenant. If you obey my covenant, the covenant is God's law to the people of Israel. If you obey my covenant, I'll bless you. If you don't obey my covenant, you will be cursed. But the key is, is that in Leviticus 25 and 26, the focal point is the Sabbath and the rest upon, uh, for the land. The land has to enjoy its Sabbath also. Does that make sense? Whereas in Deuteronomy, the context is all of my law. The whole covenant. You obey my whole covenant, I'll bless you. You disobey my whole covenant, I will curse you. All right. So now here we go. Verse, um, let's see, uh, verse 6 I'll grant uh, of chapter 26. I'll grant uh, peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sore will pass through your land. All right, verse uh, 10. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, this is one of the great promises of Scripture, by the way. Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you shall not be slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke 
and made you walk erect. Notice this is the promise. If you obey, you're going to have peace in the land. You're not going to be slaves anymore. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I didn't bring you into slavery. I brought you out of slavery, right? Now you're thinking about Daniel now, right? Where are the people at? They're in slavery. They're in exile, which is essentially slavery. Do they have peace in the land? No. So now we go to verse 14 and below uh, of chapter 26. If you do not obey me and do not carry out my commands, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances and so as to not carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant. There's the key word, covenant. The context is obedience to the covenant, blessings for obedience to the covenant, curses for disobedience to the covenant. All right, verse 16. I, in turn, will do this to you. All right, verse uh, 17. I will set my face against you so that you shall be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you shall rule over you. And you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. And we go back to the book of Daniel and what's happening? This verse is being fulfilled. The Israelite people are being ruled over by their enemies. Conclusion, they haven't obeyed the covenant. They haven't obeyed the covenant, right? So we continue on, verse uh, 18 now. If after these things you do not obey me, then I will... Now notice this. If after these things you don't obey me, I will punish you seven times more. In other words, uh, if you don't obey me, I'm going to send you into exile. Foreign nations will rule over you. And if after that, if you don't obey me, then I will increase your punishment sevenfold. All right, for your sins. Verse 19, I will also break down your pride of power. I'll make your, uh, make, uh, your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Notice the imagery of Daniel. Iron and bronze. All right, verse, uh, let's see, 21. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you Seven times. You're going to see this theme of seven times. According to your sins, verse 24. Then I will act with hostility against you. Ah, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sin. Verse 27. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but you act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. All right, now let's skip down to verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath. Ah, the punishment is because they haven't given the land its Sabbath. And I will strike you seven times more if you don't obey me. Then, verse 34 again, the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. And all the days of the desolation, while you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. I'm going to send you in exile so that my land can have Sabbath. You haven't given my land its Sabbath, so I will kick you out of it. And then the land will have its Sabbath. Okay? Now, it's, by the way, it's totally irrelevant if other people came and lived there and, and toiled the soil. That, that, that's irrelevant. The land is having Sabbath from the Israelite people. That's the point. Okay? So here we go. Verse, 30, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity. That's huge. For what we're going to read in Daniel 9. If they confess their iniquity 
and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I, was, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them up to the land of their enemies, or if they're unclean hearts, they're humble because they, right, verse 42. Then I'll remember my covenant. So verse 40, if they confess their iniquity, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I'll also remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. See the word covenant? And I will remember the land. For the land, verse 43, shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. See what's happening? See this theme? All right, verse 44 now. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them for breaking my covenant with them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. I will remember them, verse 36, 45, for I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. All right. So this is where we arrive now in Daniel chapter 9. The people of Israel have been sent into exile because they have disobeyed God's covenant. And in Leviticus, the land has to enjoy its Sabbaths because they have not given the land its Sabbaths. And if they don't obey while they're in exile, then I will increase their punishment sevenfold. Okay? Now let's skip over here to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25. Now here's, if, if you've been in our classes on, on the Old Testament, or even how to interpret the Bible, what we stress in that class, in both those classes, is that the prophets are what we call covenant enforcers. And what that means is this. The prophets are telling the people of Israel that the covenant God made with them, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, etc., will happen. Meaning, the prophets are saying, you haven't obeyed the covenant, therefore you're going to get cursed. You better repent, or you're going to get cursed. Or the prophets are saying, good job obeying his covenant. Continue doing so, and God will bless you in the land. Of course, that very rarely happened. Most of the time it was, you haven't obeyed, you haven't obeyed, you haven't obeyed. All right. Jeremiah now dates to just before Daniel. So, ballpark, 600, 610, 609, 605 B.C. Any of those, somewhere around there. They were not exiled yet then. That's the key. The point then is, the exile happens in 605. Now, 606 or 605, depending on how we date, one important event in history, and we'll dispute that, so it doesn't matter. 606, 605 B.C. So, Jeremiah is prophesying before the exile. And 586 B.C., anybody remember what happens? The temple is destroyed. The temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. Jeremiah is a prophet of great warning. And he's warning the people, you have not obeyed the covenant. And as a result, God will bring about his curses. And in Jeremiah's language, by the way, it's inevitable now. See, Isaiah said, repent, 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 repent. You've got time. 
By the time we get to Jeremiah, it's like, you know what? It's too late. This is what's going to happen. You have not obeyed. So Jeremiah chapter 25. <clears throat> Let me get some water here. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12. And it says this. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. And these nations shall, sure, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I'll make it an everlasting desolation. Excuse me. <coughs> All right, I should have brought that up on the screen here. Jeremiah 25. So now let's go to Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Same thing. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Okay? So here's the prophecy. God's going to send you in exile because you have not obeyed the covenant. And notice the reference to land in the, in the chapter 25 passage. Right? The reference to land. That tells us we got Leviticus in mind, especially. Um, verse 11 of Jeremiah, of Jeremiah 25, verse 11. This whole land shall be a desolation. And it's going to last 70 years. Okay? But let's go peek back at Leviticus for a second. Leviticus 26, verse 40. That's right. Leviticus 26, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, verse 42, then I'll remember my covenant. Right? And remember uh, verses, let's see here, Jeremiah, Leviticus 26. Here we go. This all, these are all the references to the seven times. I'll, right? Verse 18. If after these things they don't obey me, I'll punish you seven times more. Verse 18. Verse 21, seven times more. Verse 24, seven times more. Verse 28, seven times more. So what's Leviticus tell us? I'm going to send you away, and if you don't obey, your punishment sevenfold. will be increased sevenfold. Jeremiah tells us that the punishment for disobeying is 70 years. All right, everyone good with that? All right, very good. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9 now. Here we go. Yeah, my name is Daniel. That much is true. Vegetales. Yeah, absolutely. Here we go. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. All right. Jared, do you want to go grab a Bible from the back? Huh? Okay, there we go. There we go. Here we go. Now, ver uh, verse 1. In the first year of Darius the son of Asuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the, of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, stop. Hopefully we've learned something a few times. We've mentioned it a few times. When a text repeats something, it's important. In the first year of Darius, verse 1, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, we got that point. You already, already told us. Daniel's stressing the year. Whatever year this is, it's really important. And the year is 539 B.C. Okay? We know that from ancient uh, historical records. The, this is, the, the, a lot of years we don't know, by the way. I'm going to talk about that at the end, end of the night. This is one of those dates we, we know pretty well 
uh, uh, it's very well substantiated. This is the year 539 B.C. I don't know of anyone that disputes that, so it's real simple. Okay, I'm going to dispute most of the dates you're going to hear tonight, but I won't dispute that one. So how's that? All right. Now, verse 2 again. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books. He's reading something. The number of years which was, re- which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. For the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Hey, I'm Daniel. I'm reading Jeremiah. And I happen to recognize chapter 25, which he didn't call it chapter 25, but you know what I mean. And chapter 29 it's been decreed that you're going to suffer 70 years in Babylon. Verse 3 now. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And ashes. What's he doing? He's repenting. He's repenting. Remember Leviticus. If after all these years... You act with hostility, then I will increase your punishment sevenfold. If after all these years, you don't obey me, I will increase your punishment sevenfold. But if you repent, then I'll remember my covenant. Here's Daniel. I'm reading the book of Jeremiah, and all of a sudden I realize, oh my goodness, I know what year it is. And I know Jeremiah said 70 years. Um... Uh, okay, God, I'm sorry. Right? Verses 4 through, uh, what is it? Uh, 19. Daniel is repenting. And as we read verses 4 through 19, I want you to notice how many times he references the covenant, how many times Daniel repents and says, we're really wicked, but you're righteous. And how many times he says, Lord, now, let's, let's back off for a second here and uh, make sure we got a little bit of context here. I need some paper here. Let's see. This will work. Um, here we go. Remember, there are two words in Hebrew for Lord. And if you're looking at my screen, it'll be easy. All right. I think actually it does capital letters here. But nonetheless, in all caps, standing behind that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. Okay? If it's not in all caps, standing behind the Hebrew text is Adonai, which is just a divine name for God, but not as important as Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh is the name that God told Moses when he gave him the covenant. Yahweh is the name for the covenant God of Israel. So we're going to see references to the covenant in, this, in, this, in verses 4 through 19. You're going to see references to Yahweh. The only time the name Yahweh appears in the book of Daniel is here in Daniel chapter 9. Every other time you see Lord, it's not Yahweh. It's Adonai. Yahweh only appears in Daniel chapter 9. So the context then is covenant. And the point is, if you obey my covenant, I will bless you. If you don't obey, you're going to get cursed. And the curse will be 70 years, according to Jeremiah. And at the end of those 70 years, if you continue to act wickedly, then your punishment will be increased seven, sevenfold. All right? Now, we'll, we'll reckon with, with uh, Jeremiah in a little bit. Does that, that help everyone okay? We're still, we're still doing well? Feel free, please. Yeah, please, Wes. Uh, no, Daniel, Daniel 9 is Hebrew. Mm-hmm. 
Very good question. Daniel 9, Hebrew. Okay. So now, um, verses 4 of, of Daniel 9. Here we go. Say it again? It didn't. Thank you, Wes. Very good. I pray to the Lord my God, and see in my Bible up here on, on the screen, all caps. I pray to Yahweh, and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, that's Adonai, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from my commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we, now notice the we's, we have not listened to the servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which thou hast driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of Yahweh, our God, to walk in his teachings. We have set before us, uh, which he set before us through his, pro- his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has, transgre- has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse which has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. All right, let me scroll down. All right, I'm in verse 12. Is that right? Thank you very much. Verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled against us to bring on us great calamity. The words of maybe Leviticus, the words of Deuteronomy, or even the words of Jeremiah, because he's reading Jeremiah, right? To bring on us great calamity. For, For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. And he's referring perhaps to 586 B.C., the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city. As is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. This is Leviticus now, or Deuteronomy. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God, there's Yahweh, by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Therefore, Yahweh, the Lord, has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for Yahweh, our God, is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and has made a name for thyself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have acted wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thy anger and thy wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, the holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy, thy desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thy ear and, and hear Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name, for we are not presenting our supplications. There's no temple, there's no sacrifices. Before thee on account of any, uh, any of our merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thy own sake, O my God, do not delay. 
because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. One of the great prayers of repentance in all of Scripture. But what we have to understand about this prayer of repentance is that Daniel, or this prayer of repentance, as it comes to us, is resonating, is dwelling in the midst of Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 26. The land has not enjoyed its Sabbath because we have sinned. We broke your covenant. And now, now, uh, so let's, let's work our way through the notes a little bit. I'm going to skip over uh, this here, the top uh, outline for a second. Uh, other than 9, 4 through 19, Daniel prays for the restoration and vindication of Jerusalem. All right, we'll look at the rest of it here in a minute. All right. Um, we know that this is the year 539 B.C., no problem. Daniel's reading Jeremiah 25, all right, and Jeremiah 29, that says that the exile will last 70 years. After 70 years, uh, the, the exile itself uh, will come to an end. Uh, and um, what's interesting is the Second Chronicles 36 passage. Let's look at that. And there's a couple things that are very intriguing about this passage. Okay, Second Chronicles 36. What you're going to notice is, this is the end of Second Chronicles. Okay, now, in the Hebrew Bible, these are the last verses in the Bible. The Hebrew Bible is not arranged the same as our Bible is. We put all the historical books together, all the prophetic books together, all the Psalms, and, right? They don't order it the same way. Daniel, by the way, is not even with the prophets. Daniel's with the history books. Okay? It's not even one of the prophets. It's one of the history books. All right. Second Chronicles is the last book in the Jewish Old Testament. Okay? This, therefore, this is the last couple of verses of the Jewish Bible. All right. Verse 20. Those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. This is Daniel then, right? They were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. <clears throat> to fulfill the word of the Lord by the, by the mouth of Jeremiah... See, he, he knows Jeremiah 25 as well. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. See, the writer of Chronicles knows the reason why they were sent away is because they didn't obey the covenant of Leviticus 25 and 26, namely the land. All the days of desolation that kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stood up the spirit of Cyrus the king. He sent a proclamation to the kingdom and put, his, put it in writing. And he said, go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay. Now, all right, let's go back to uh, Daniel now. Daniel 9. As well. All right. So the point I want, I, I want us to catch there was that even the chronicler is understanding the fact that the exile was because of Leviticus. They didn't obey the covenant of, namely, re regarded, regarding um, uh, the land uh, as well. All right. So Daniel's response now. Oh, by the way, you know, what year is it? Well, here, here's the deal. We don't know the year, I don't believe, that Jeremiah uttered the prophecy. If you put the year 609 down, then it's been 70 years. Whatever is happening, Daniel's stressing the year it is. And, and I think the answer is this. Daniel's stressing that the 70 years are either up or they'll be up soon. Make sense? We're, we're really close to the end of these 70 years. And that Jeremiah prophesied before Jerusalem was destroyed, which was 605, 606, it's pretty obvious we're near the end of the 70 years. All right, what's Daniel realizing? We haven't repented. 
You see, Leviticus says that if you continue to do evil, I'll punish you seven times more. If you confess, then I'll restore you. Uh, uh, you're God, we're not, we've sinned, you're righteous, we're not, uh-oh. I hope it works. Right? He's repenting, and notice all the we's. Right? He's repenting on behalf of the nation, hoping that indeed God hears the prayer uh, um, as well. Okay, now, any questions on that? Very good. All right, here's the deal. We've gone, we've gone pretty deep. Let's, let's go ahead and take our break now, because there's just not going to be a time for a break after this. And now let's get to, make it about a three-minute break or so, and we'll get to this fulfillment, uh, or this interpret the, the answer to his prayer, how's that, uh, by the angel Gabriel in verses 20 through 27. Alright, now let's go back a little bit now and make sure we're, we're, that we're up to pace. Alright, what we've stressed so far is Daniel 9 is resonating with the, past, the prophecy of Jeremiah. Seventy years have been decreed for you people to suffer in Babylon. And we find out that, that was because of Leviticus 25 and 26 specifically you didn't give the land its Sabbath rest. That's the covenant that you didn't obey. You didn't enjoy the, the years of Jubilee and give the land its rest. Um, and, and you weren't obedient. All right. Now, we go back, however, to the fact that Daniel 9 is still in the midst of this whole story. And this whole story is the little horn is triumphing over God's people. And you have to rescue us and deliver us, and defeat the kingdoms of the world. And in Daniel 9, the, answer, the question that's being addressed is, how is God going to do that? And the answer is, he's going to do it through the Messiah. Right? So we've got these two things side by side, and we're going to see now, in verses 20 through 27, how they come together. All right? So the two thoughts that we started with tonight, hopefully, that's the goal anyways, they're going to come together very soon, right? Right? Here we go. Let's read verses 20 through 27. No idea where I'm at. And here we go. Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening's offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Okay, here's your answer. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. To finish transgression, to make an atonement for for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. Now a good translation makes the distinction between the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. And 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and its sanctuary. 
and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war. There will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, the most problematic he in the entire Bible, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations. Will come one who makes desolate, even until a decree, a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, very good. Simple enough, right? Any questions? Pretty obvious what's happening here. Very good. Here we go. All right, got it all. Here we go. Let me see. I'm trying to find. Here we go. All right, verse 24 now. Let me see if I have, I have some of this on the outline. Um, all right. Gabriel appears to Daniel, letter A on page 21, to give him understanding. The context, Jeremiah 25, and the prophecy of 70 years. Gabriel expand, explains that the 70 years have initiated a process that will last 490 years. It's seven times. The punishment for your people has been increased seven times. All right? Um, and we, we know, it, it seems, and almost everyone agrees. Uh, here we go. Let's, let's see. Actually, it's down uh, letter E. The seven, it says 77s is what it says in Daniel 9. All right. It seems to imply 70 times 7. That's basically how you would say 70 times 7 uh, in, in an ancient text. And the fact that it was years in Jeremiah seems to suggest... See, some of your translations say 70 weeks, right? Anybody have that? Yep. All right. So, uh, ESV? Is that right? Okay. Uh, New American Standard actually says it as well. Here we go. So, here's our translations. 70 weeks are decreed. All right, New American Standard says 70 weeks. Uh, Net Bible, 70 weeks. So we'll look at the footnote in a second. NIV, 77s or weeks. Um, helping us out there. 70 weeks, 70 weeks. All right. The Greek says 77s. And let's look at the, at the note here. I don't know if you can see that over there. Um, that's the ESV note on the right-hand column. In Hebrew, it says sevens. Elsewhere, the term is used of a literal week. That's why the translations go with 70 weeks. It literally says 77s. The fact that the sevens, let's put it away, the fact that the 70 was years in Jeremiah leads almost everyone to conclude that this is 70 times 7 years, i.e. 490 years, not 490 weeks. That fits also because Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Leviticus said, if you don't repent, I'm going to increase your punishment by seven times. And that seven times appeared, what, four or five different times in Leviticus 26. So it seems widely acknowledged, if not universally acknowledged, that verse 24 is 490 years of decreed. Guess what, Daniel? Your prayer was really good and great, but it wasn't good enough. He prayed on behalf of the people, but the people have not repented. Okay? Now, briefly, Stephen. Why does everyone agree except the translators? The translators have left it the way it is. In other words, the translators have not interpreted the passage for us. The translators have translated the passage for us with 70 weeks. Because it says seven, 77s, and 7s is a, is a week in the Hebrew text. But the context is Jeremiah. And in, Je in Jeremiah, the 70 was 70 years. Therefore, it seems 70 times 7, based on Leviticus, it seems it's 490 years. And everyone seems to pretty much agree with that as well. All right. 
there you go. And, that, and now that's an interpretation for you as opposed to a translation. And no problem at all. So, very good. All right, so now the next point is that we're going to have uh, several things are going to happen here. Let me skip down here. I'm, uh, I'm sure I'm going to go back. Oh, I'm going to skip down to something I don't have in your notes. Let me see. Do I have it somewhere? Okay, there, there, there it is. It's on the bottom of page 21. And it says, I, I actually, this is convoluted, so this isn't well organized here. This is a reference to verse 24. In verse 24, six things are listed. It's going to take 490 years, and then, and then this is going to happen. And then verses 25 through 27 kind of parse out those 490 years. So let me go back. In 490 years, seven, six things are going to happen. One of them is, it's going to finish transgression. The second one is, it's going to take away sins. And the third one is, it's going to atone for wickedness. You guys see that in verse 24 of your Bibles? 70 weeks, or 490 years, have been decreed for finishing transgression, making an end of sin, and making atonement for iniquity. First three things. On the top, page 22 now, are the next three things. And that is... To bring in everlasting righteousness, top page 22. To seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, some translations might say most holy place, okay, uh, or most holy here. That's fine. I, I think it is place, but that's okay uh, as well. All right, so we have these six things that are going to happen within the course of these 490 years. Okay, now stop being Westerners. Stop trying to parse everything out and do a detailed chronological map of time frame here. Because we're still in the midst of an apocalypse. We're still in the midst of an apocalypse. We've got to be careful with how the numbers and the time schema are going to unfold. Okay? Bear that in mind. Also bear this in mind. We talked about this in the biblical interpretation class. Prophecy is conditional. Almost all prophecies are conditional. What does that mean? The prophecy is conditional on either the repentance of the people or the disobedience of the people. 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Was it destroyed in 40 days? No. Why? They repented. It doesn't say, well, if you repent, God won't do it. It just says 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But I don't think any of us believe that Jonah is a false prophet. The point is, if you obey, repent, then God won't do it. And Jeremiah 18 actually says very specifically that. If, however, they repent, then I won't do, okay, I won't do it. So here's the deal. Jeremiah said you're going to spend 70 years in Babylon. What we actually know then, based on the nature of prophecy, is if they would have repented before the 70 years were up, they could have gone home earlier. They could have gone home earlier. They didn't repent, however, as Daniel 9 is clearly telling us. Daniel's attempt to repent for the, for the sake of the people wasn't good enough. And therefore, the punishment was increased sevenfold. Now, what do we know about the 490 years? If they repent before it, then it won't last the whole 490 years. You see the problem? We try to parse out these 490 years and say, and how, from this date to this date, it's been 483 years and there's seven years left here in the answer is, if you repent before then, 
then God will bring about the prosperity of the blessings. It doesn't have to wait 490 years. And by the way, that's the whole point of some of the latter prophets. Habakkuk is saying, guys, you don't have to wait the whole 490 years. You can repent now, and God will bring about the blessings. You don't have to wait all 490 years. All right. So that's the, that's the first thing. We have to be careful about how to parse out all these numbers. We're like, oh, we got all these numbers. I'm going to figure it all out. Daniel's given us this, this, you know, remember, I didn't go down to my office at the break. Did you notice that? Uh, I got all these charts, and all these charts are going to figure it all out. Okay? No, not going to work. Let's see if I can explain why. All right, here we go. Now, um, these six things are going to happen over the course of these uh, 490 years. Uh, I'm going to save that for later. Here we go. The key verses then. Well, verse 25 says, you're to know this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, comes, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? Now, you could go, that's 69 out of the 70. That's 483 years, for those of you math whizzes. Or it seems to be, there'll be seven weeks, and then there'll be 62 weeks. It's, it's actually very convoluted here in the text itself uh, as well. Now, the first thing is this. We have several of these proposed dates. What, what decree? Oh, oh, it's easy. It's, it's the decree of Cyrus. Okay. No, no, no. It's this decree. There's like five different decrees that theologians or biblical scholars or, mess, or, or end times pretenders, if you want to know what I think of them, um, uh, will go, that they'll throw out there. Everybody, no, it's this date. No, it's this date. No, it's this date. No, it's this date. Because see, what they're going to do is they're going to say, from this date here, and you go 483 years, then, then guess what happens? Then the Messiah comes. Oh, there's a perfect time frame to tell us when Jesus is going to come on the earth. And, and by the way, some of these efforts are pretty good. They come really close. Because again, the decree was Primarily, the, the prominent decree is 445 B.C. All right, 445 B.C. All right, so you go 445 B.C., and you go 483 years, and, and guess what? It gets you into the early 30s, 38 A.D. It misses. <laughs> Nothing happened in 38 A.D. Jesus is gone. All right? I believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus was A.D. 30, by the way. Oh, well, here's what you do now. It's 483 years, but that's on our solar calendar. You see, the Jews use a lunar calendar, and there's only 360 days in the lunar calendar. So you take off five days a year for 483 years, and that adds up to like six years, and we get down to like Palm Sunday. I've seen the day. I've, I've done the number. Actually, won't go any further. All right. Um, <laughs> problem. Palm Sunday is not when the Messiah cut a covenant. That would be Good Friday. So none of the dates work, and none of the, none of the numerical schemas work. They, I'm sorry, they just don't. And let alone, we're in an apocalyptic book here. We've got to be careful about doing all this stuff. I just read in the last two days, Harold Camping's Time Has an End. All right? Don't, please, please don't laugh. Please don't laugh. Please don't laugh. Please don't laugh. All right. But I, I read this out. I read Harold Camping is predicting May 21st of this year for the second coming of Jesus. Or, or for the end. Or, uh, May 21st of this year. Yeah, so, yeah, make sure you got All right. I'm going to call you on May 22. Look what he does. Look, look, this is the chart in the back of his book. Look at all the numbers. 
Look at all the times. And he's got, let's see what, let's see what year he's using here. Um, Judah loses his appendix, just destroyed. Okay, he doesn't actually have the year for this decree. That's interesting. Um, but everything's parsed out, all these numbers, and, and, and everything's parsed out, and we arrive up here. 1988 was the, end of the, sec- uh, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Um, 1994 was the end of the Second Jubilee. 2011, the probable date for the end of the world. He's got it all parsed out. Guys, it doesn't work. I was born in 1988. Yeah. We, none of us, and the rest of us in the room needed to hear that. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, as well. All right, so let's see if we can go through this a little bit further now. Here we go. We're doing all right. Here we go. 26 and 27 now are the key. And these verses are, are disputed, but there's a standard interpretation. And here's what I'm going to su- suggest to you. I think verses 26 and 27 are repeating themselves. I'll say it again. Verses 26 and 27 are repeating themselves. All right? Verse 26. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So, according to that, we have two persons in this verse. One's the Messiah. The other is the people of the prince. The Messiah will be cut off. Now, the Hebrew word for cut off, and I'm sure this is on your notes somewhere, is karat. There it is, top page 22. Karat is the Hebrew word used to cut a covenant. In Hebrew, you never make a covenant with someone. You cut one. And the reason why is because a covenant is always made with blood. It's the sacrifice of an animal. You cut a covenant. So it's very significant that the, word, the Hebrew word karat is used here. So I, and, and most everyone's going to agree with this one, there's no dispute yet. The Messiah will be cut off refers to the cross as Christians. Notice Matthew 26 20, verses 27 and 28 says, The blood of Jesus is the blood of the new covenant. It's a new covenant. The shedding of blood. He's cutting a new covenant on the cross. That seems to fit with what's going on here. So in other words, we have some time designation for when the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Okay. Now remember, the whole theme of these three chapters has been this little horn will trample underfoot the people of God. But then God will destroy the little horn. How's God going to destroy the little horn? Answer, the Messiah will cut off, will cut a new covenant. That's how he's going to do it. But what do we know about the Messiah cutting a new covenant? The Messiah is trampled also. The Messiah suffers himself. This is the major theme of the New Testament, I believe, for the people of God. Overcome, in the book of Revelation, just as I overcame. But in Revelation 5, he overcame by being the lamb that was slain. So the point then is, how is the Messiah going to defeat the little horn? Answer, he's going to die. He's going to cut a covenant. All right. So Daniel's Messiah will bring in all the covenant blessings and not merely the restoration of the land. All right, that's the side point. Here we go. Now, um, let me see here. I think I have it better. On my notes this way. Here we go. Here's a little bit of uh, English text for us. Let's zoom in a little bit. Here we go. 
what I did is I, as I parsed out verses 26 and 27 like this. All right, verse 26. It says, then after the 60, this is the New American Standard. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people, the prince who is to come, all right, which we'll worry about who that is in a little while. But for right now, as far as Daniel's concerned, it's the little horn, perhaps. It's the enemy. Okay. Um, and then all this is, is referencing this, this destruction. Now, verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with many for one seven. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifices. Well, if these two verses are parallel to each other, then that he is the Messiah. Everyone see that? If these two verses are repeating itself, and it seems to work well for a couple reasons. One, the he here is the Messiah. All right? And, and, and most likely that, that fits the, Greek te- the Hebrew and Greek text very, very well for a few reasons. Next, notice the re- reference to a firm covenant. All right. This cannot be a reference to making a new covenant. I think I have this on your notes somewhere. This reference is here. Let's see here. I hope I'm being clear. Um, J, where do you see it? Here we go. Uh, to, uh, uh, point number one. There you go. Uh, uh, under J. He will confirm a covenant with many. It says that the, the, the Hebrew word hegbir, which is translated as confirm, suggests the confirming of a previous covenant and not the making of a new one. This is, in other words, the word used here is a reference to the covenant of verse 26. In other words, I think there's two parallels here. First off, the Messiah and the He are the same person. The cutting of the covenant and the making of a firm covenant are the same. Then you go down to the middle of verse 27, and it says, on the wing of the abominations will come one who makes desolate. That is different. That's the same as the people of the prince who is to come. Notice what's happening in both verses. The Messiah is establishing a covenant. The Messiah is establishing a covenant. In verse 26, the people of the prince will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. In verse 27, the one who will come will make desolate and destroy the city and the sanctuary. What did we find out in Daniel 8? The little horn tramples the holy place the city, and the sanctuary. Remember last week I read Daniel, Revelation 11? The holy place is trampled underfoot. The holy city, excuse me, is trampled underfoot. But in Revelation 11, the holy city is the people. What's the conclusion? The the way the Messiah is going to be victorious, the way the stone is going to destroy the image of Daniel 2, is by dying and establishing a new covenant. Okay, everyone okay with that so far? Questions, comments? Yes. So are you saying the new covenant is just a fulfillment of the old covenant? Mm-hmm. Not really new? Without question. The, the, the new covenant is a fulfillment of the old covenant. All right? I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. There's no, there's no way that you can read the new covenant as replacing the old one. It's fulfilling the old one uh, um, as well. All right. Now, let, uh, um, let me go further then and show you well, where all the disagreement comes from. All right? If everyone's okay with that. I think that interpretation fits the context, fits the theme of Daniel 7, 8, and 9, makes sense of, of uh, the Old Testament context. Uh, except, oh, you know what? We can't go further. We, we've got to finish up one more thought. Okay? Because we have the 70th week still in, in play, right? In verse 27 now, it says, let me, break, let me put this back up. 
in the middle of the 70th week. All right? Uh, let's see. Um, uh, here, this is verse 27. In the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. I'm suggesting that's the Messiah. Jesus' death on the cross, the temple curtain rips in half. There's no more sacrifices. You Jews might keep sacrificing all you want, but they're done. Sacrifices have ceased. In the middle of the 70th week, he does it. Now, what does that mean? That means that it, there still leaves three and a half more years. There's a, the second half of week 70. All right? Well, here's something interesting. The only time frame we have in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. And it's three and a half years. We have three and a half years left, according to this prophecy. In the middle of that last seven, the Messiah ends the sacrificial system. Right? And he, he, by the way, he does all those things in verses, uh, letter, uh, uh, bottom of 21, top of 22. He, uh, he finishes transgressions. All right, let's see here. I got to pan out a little bit, right? All right. He finishes transgressions. All right. He takes away sins and he atones for wickedness. And I gave you some New Testament references that, that loosely at least support that. He also does what? He brings in everlasting righteousness. He seals up vision and prophecy. And he anoints the most holy. Well, it could be holy place. I think it is holy place, by the way, right? But what does Jesus say? I am the temple. Anointing the holy place is Jesus. He's the true temple. So I think the things in verse 24 are actually done, accomplished in Christ. But we have this three and a half years left over. Well, when we go to the book of Revelation, it's 42 months. It's 42 months. It's 1,260 days, which is three and a half Jewish year, years in the Jewish calendar. Right? I interpret that. This will, you have to come to the Revelation class to, go, to get more detail on this as well. Right? That the entire era of the New Testament from the resurrection of Jesus until his second coming is that three and a half years. The only thing that's left now is the return of Christ. Now, verse 27 says, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. All right. Actually, and going back to verse 26 in parallel, he'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. After the Messiah is cut off, the people of the prince We'll destroy the city in the sanctuary. A.D. 70. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Okay. Now, let me see if I can support this. <clears throat> the whole point of Daniel has been that the punishment upon the people of Israel is going to be increased sevenfold because you haven't repented. In order to receive the blessing, I think this, by the way, is hugely important for all kinds of reasons which I can't go into now. Or I won't go into now. In order to receive the blessings of God's covenant, you must repent first. How do the Gospels begin? Repent. John the Baptist is preaching a, a baptism of repentance. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And don't say we have Abraham as our father 
Because God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Repent. If you want to be a part of this kingdom that the Messiah is establishing, you must repent to be a member of it. Repentance is the key. Jesus is announcing the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. The people of Israel must simply repent in order to receive it. Okay, does that help? All right. Now, last couple minutes here, uh, and, and I can touch on this because it's so important uh, at the beginning of next week, uh, if need be, uh, as well. But let me see if I have it on here. here uh, actually, I just, I'm going to reference it this way. Let me just go back to this. All right. There are the popular conception of Hal Lindsey, and I'm not bashing Hal Lindsey. I think he's a brother in Christ. I just radically disagree with his interpretation of the end times. Um, Tim LaHaye, uh, Jerry Jenkins, and all these end times speculators, if I can call them that, their interpretation is this, that the he here is the Antichrist. What they do is they say, the Messiah is cut off after the 62 weeks, that leaves seven years still. Hence, you have a seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist comes, and he's going to make his own treaty with Israel in the end times, which is a problem because I think this firm covenant is paralleling the covenant the Messiah made. But the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. That's why Walford wrote a book in 1992, Armageddon, Oil in the Middle East. Because he was convinced that the Middle East, the war, the first Gulf War, was going to end with the Antichrist coming to power. You can buy the book for like 25 cents, by the way, on Amazon.com now. Because um, it didn't happen. But, but the, 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 the war in um, um, uh, Iraq, would end with the Antichrist making a peace treaty between Israel and the Middle Eastern nations. And that would be it. And that, that would begin the seven-year tribulation. In the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist will destroy the temple. That means the temple has to be rebuilt. So what are we looking to happen? We're looking for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. This is the whole scheme. Everything they believe about the end times comes from this passage. And as a result of their reading of this passage, they read the entire New Testament in light of this passage. It really does boil down that, that simply. I really believe they've misread it. And, not, and I'm not alone. The overwhelming majority of scholars are going to agree with, with the position that I'm taking here as well. Mind you, this is a very complicated passage. There's, no one's going to deny that. Okay? This is a very complicated passage as well. But does, everyone, does that make sense to everyone? We okay with that? What was the interpretation on firm? Well, the key is, is the Hebrew word uh, uh, hegbir references a covenant that's already been established. It doesn't reference the making of a new covenant. That you would use karat. Karat means to cut a new, uh, uh, to cut a covenant. Karat is used in verse 26 in the Hebrew text, but hegbir is used here, which references the affirming up of one already established, a covenant that's already been made. So this can't be a new covenant of the Antichrist. Yes. Yeah, okay, very good. So, so my interpretation then is saying this, that the Messiah is going to come, after the Messiah comes, probably Rome will destroy Jerusalem. But it says in verse 27 then, in the middle of the week, he, and this he refers to this he, and that he is Christ. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. This is thought, oh, this is the Antichrist going into the Jewish temple and ending the sacrifices. 
No, this is Christ going on the cross and ending the sacrifices. Um, and so what that means then is he does that in the middle of the week. So that puts the cross in the middle of week 69 and a half, or in the middle of week 70. And it leaves this three and a half year time frame. Well, what about the last three and a half years? In the New Testament, the only time frame given is three and a half. It's the only, there's ne- you'll never find seven years in the New Testament. Okay? I'm a pre-tribulational rapturist. I believe the rapture happened seven years before the second coming of Jesus. There's no seven years in the New Testament. Period. There's only three and a half. 1,260 days, or 42 months, is in the book of Revelation, and only in the book of Revelation. That seems to correspond, then, with the latter half of Daniel's 70th week. Now, I, I talked a little bit about how much Daniel has influence in the book of Revelation, so that seems to make sense then. Therefore, the last three and a half years is the period of the time of the New Testament. The Great Tribulation is not seven years long, it's three and a half years long. But the Great Tribulation is at least 2,000 years long. Because three and a half years in an apocalyptic literature is a symbolic time frame. Remember, three and a half is what? The period of time in which the people of God suffer. The little horns trampling us for three and a half years. Which so far has been about almost 2,000 years. Alright, we've gone over a little bit, but I, but I understand there's a lot of questions that have surfaced here. So if you need to leave, go ahead. But if you want to hang in, I'll, try to, I'll close in prayer in about one minute or so, and I'll take more questions afterwards. Great question. Great question. If you come next week to the church history course, I'll answer it. Yeah. And it's a church history course. The question is, how could so many people have mis- misread that? All right, the answer is because they've adopted a very literalistic hermeneutic. What I mean by that is, their, their rule for interpreting the Bible is, we interpret everything literally. So seven years means seven years. Three and a half years means three and a half years. All right, and as a result then... They've been forced to read this time schema into, into things, um, and they've read back into Daniel a time schema. Right? The other thing is this. What's happening in the... By the way, this whole theme of this being the Antichrist has only been taught in the last 100 or so years. The church has never, never thought that the he in verse 27 was the Antichrist. Never. Okay. Uh, until the late 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. All right. What was happening in that era also, by the way, was this growing pessimism towards the state all right, and towards culture and society. All right? And you see, this fosters right into it, namely that the state and society is our, is our antithesis and we're at war with them. It's a very pessimistic view of history. The Antichrist is going to take over. He's going to defeat all the kings of the world. And then Jesus comes. So that pessimism fed into this also. There's a number of factors there as well. All right, let me close in prayer, and then I'll, I'll be happy to stay and talk some more. And we can bring this up at the beginning of next week. So at the beginning of next week, if you're like, Rob, I, I don't get it, what's going on? Uh, no problem. We've got three chapters to do next week, but it's really kind of all summary now. I mean, this, it's all downhill from here. And, and Daniel chapter 12, we'll spend the most time on, uh, on next week as well. But so, so, Father, we, we ask for your mercy and your grace, because we acknowledge that we have to come to a text like this with humility. What incredibly divergent viewpoints. Is the he Christ or the Antichrist? How could we have such incredible differences amongst us? So we ask in humility, Lord, that you would make known to us truth, and that we would respect and love all those who disagree or even agree with us. And that we would 
understand the significance of the Messiah establishing his covenant, that we all agree that that happened, and you've put an end to sacrifices. You've atoned for wickedness. You are the temple of God. And we ask, Lord, and pray that you would help us to be faithful. No matter what view we're holding to, to the, in this passage, we all agree that there's a time of suffering, of tribulation that's coming our way. And that is already here for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. And we especially, again, lift up our brothers and sisters in Iraq, in um, Libya, in Egypt. The events of our present day history that we're watching on the news every night are making things very difficult for them. And so we pray for them, dear God, and ask your mercy and your grace. Be with them all. And be with us all now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.